We're going to go ahead and get started in 6.30 on, the, on your phone or tablet probably. Glad that you're here tonight. Check one, two. Yeah. Yeah, glad to be back in the book of Revelation tonight after taking some time off here around the holidays. You have your Bible or your notes toward Revelation chapter 16. We'll do a quick overview very, very quickly on where we're at. Um, as you remember, um, or if you've ever read through the book of Revelation, uh, we looked at the first three chapters uh, written to the church and to the churches of that day. Um, and then we begin to move into chapter 4. We see that John is taken to heaven and we see the unfolding of the judgments and the seals and all of the things that have been going on. I've told you what I believe. I believe that the rapture of the church is the next event on God's timeline, which then begins a seven-year literal period where God deals with the Jewish people. And we've looked at that, and uh, I want just to remind you, though, as we go through the book of Revelation, sometimes people get very confused, and so God will explain things, and then he'll take a chapter or two and kind of reflect back about why this happened, or from another viewpoint, for like in chapters 12 and 13. And so when we come to chapter 16, uh, I believe these will all happen in a matter of hours, days, and weeks, if that long at all. Uh, it is at the very end of the seven-year tribulation period. And um, we see here the Lord pouring out judgment on the world. And you say, well, Jake, we have seen so much judgment in this chapter. Um, and I hate to tell you that tonight it is, again, some more of it. But we have to remember why God is doing this. Why? God has been working through this to, one, punish all of those who have taken the mark of the beast. But it has also been because we believe that God has a special purpose for the nation of Israel. And if you read Romans chapter 11, that he has desire is for all of Israel to be saved. And so we've looked at the 144,000 evangelists. We've looked at the two witnesses and so when we come to chapter 16 tonight this is the the final events of the tribulation period and what happens though is we see chapter 16 and then chapter 17 and 18 describe the fall of babylon and and who that is in the bible but when chapter 16 ends the event that happens next is chapter 19 when the lord returns all right, so chapter 17 and 18 explain what has happened during the tribulation period to the false witness, the false prophet, to the uh, pagan church, and all of those things. And so when we jump into chapter 16, you're going to see some things that are very similar to what we've seen in other places in God's Word. If you remember in chapters uh, 7 through 12 of the Exodus, we see very similar judgment on one nation, right? The nation of Egypt. If you have read Revelations chapter 8 through 11, we see many of the very same judgments, but they were poured out on one third of the world. And now when you come to chapter 16, it is poured out throughout the entire world. And so God's judgment has continued 
to encompass more and more towards lost people. But when we go through this chapter, I really want you to do me a favor and jump down uh, with me to verses um, 7. Verse 7 is a key verse in this whole chapter. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. And so just like in our day when we look at how God does things from time to time, we ask the question, why? And with all the judgment that is going on in chapter 16 and all of the destruction and all of the heartache, uh, heaven wants us to know that God is correct, that what God is doing has a purpose. If you jump down to verse 9, we see why God continues to pour out his judgment. Look at verse 9, and men were scorched with great heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues and they did not repent and give him glory. If you jump down to verse 11, they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. And so it says that repeatedly in my opinion. This is my opinion. You can disagree with it and be wrong all the time. It doesn't bother me at all, okay? That when God is at work, the desire of the judgment and correction of God is to bring people to repentance. I believe that when the Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, that's what he means. And so even though there is all of this judgment, all of this heartache, we constantly see the heart of man, the heart of the wickedness of this day and age, to know that the entire world, with the exception of those few who have not taken the mark of the beast, or the 144,000 who are sealed and protected have all hated the things of God, right? We're not talking about one political party in a nation. We're not talking about one culture group in a nation. We're talking a worldwide rebellion and hatred for God, but not just for God. If you remember chapter 12, a hatred for the Jewish people, for the nation of Israel. And so when judgment is being poured out, it is because God has promised throughout his entire word that he will show mercy on those who want mercy. But there will come a day when God's mercy and grace to sinners, that day will stop and the judgment of God will fall. And so when we start this chapter, we're going to just go through it, look at verses, and hopefully tonight you will see while God is merciful, God also takes the judgment of sin seriously. And so starting in verse 1, it says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. And if you remember last time we talked about the bowls would have been very wide. They would have been very shallow. And so they would have been pouring out as they would have been transported. It wasn't like a five-gallon bucket. It was a, a wide, very not deep pan. And so these seven angels we've already met. We met them in Revelation chapter 15, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven 
great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues. For in the wrath of God is what? Complete. That is why I believe this is literally going to happen because the judgment of sin is coming to completion, right? And it's a time when things are going to stop being the way that they are and things are going to change, right? Because at the end of this chapter, and when we look at chapter 19, Jesus comes to destroy his enemies. And so the wrath of God is going to come to completion. That's very important because why? When something ends, either something new has to begin. And so when the judgment of sin is complete, then we get to see the blessing of what that looks like for Jesus to destroy his enemies. I believe chapter 20 teaches that he will set up a earthly kingdom that will reign for 1,000 years. And uh, it'll be a beautiful thing, but yet sin has to be judged. And so we know that Jesus took the punishment of our sin on the cross. And so we know that while he took the judgment of God, it bought our pardon, our forgiveness. But for all of those who reject Jesus, we are seeing a judgment that is coming to an end. And so this is very important because when it comes to completion, then God is going to do something new. And the new for us as believers is exciting. The new, for those who don't know Christ, is not exciting. Because why? The Bible says they will be thrown into the lake of fire. Okay? And so now we're going to see what these judgments look like. Any questions? Thoughts? All right. If you don't stop me, we're just barreling right through, okay? All right. The first bowl. Look at verse 2 this evening. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. If you were to look uh, in the Greek Bible from the Old Testament, you would see the same word that is used here was used in Exodus chapter 9, verse 9. If you look there, it will become fine dust in all of the land of Egypt and it will cause boils that break out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. It's the very same word used in Luke chapter 16 when it talks about the rich man and Lazarus starting in verse 21, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dog came and licked his Sores. And so this is not a, a new judgment. It is a, a judgment that we have seen God use, but on a much bigger scale. It's also talked about in the Old Testament that this day would come. In Zechariah chapter 14, look what it says in verse 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Who are those who are going to fight against Jerusalem? Those who have the mark of the beast. We're going to look at the last two plagues when the armies of the world come to Armageddon to destroy Israel. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. And so this flesh-eating disease that we have seen in Revelation and Luke 
and in Exodus. The Lord says it is going to be poured out on the world, but look who it's going to be poured out on. This is very important. It's going to be poured out on who? Everyone who has taken the mark of the beast. In Revelation chapter 14, we saw this explained to us. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand. Not only are there going to be eternal consequences for following the Antichrist, there are temporary costs for following the Antichrist. And it's the same way with sin today. We know the Bible talks about that there are eternal consequences for sin, for rejecting the free gift of salvation, for committing the unpardonable sin. But we also know there are earthly consequences for sin, right? If I commit gluttony, I'm going to start looking like I am, right? If I begin to tell lies, I'm not going to be a trustworthy Person, And so we see the same pattern of sin that we deal with now. Sin has earthly consequences, but it also has eternal consequences. And this is going to be a big deal because why? The people who take the mark of the beast, the people who follow after the Antichrist have been promised what? Peace, prosperity. This world leader who is solving all of their problems, but yet we know that there is no solving of any problems outside of the Lord, right? You can put your faith in politicians. You can put your faith in doctors. You can put your faith in government. You can put your faith in the monetary system. But if it's not in the Lord, it is built on what? Sinking sand. It is built on something that will not last. And so for me, in my flesh, when I read this, I think, you get them, Lord. Right, They've got it coming. But then the Spirit of God has to deal with me to remind me that, Jake, you deserve it. Right, You should never rejoice in the death of the wicked because the Bible says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And so the Spirit in me says, ah, Jake, don't be like that. But the flesh in me says, just smite them all, Lord. Right, Make it as painful and awful as you can. But remember, throughout this entire chapter, John keeps reminding us that they would not what? Repent. They would not repent. And so I think if you read through this chapter in an excitement of, yes, they're getting what they are deserving, friends, our heart's in the wrong place. Right? And so we see this. It's a reminder that our task of taking the Great Commission, the good news of Jesus to all people, is serious and that we should never be so prideful to think that God won't judge our sin or won't judge the sin of those that we love because what we see here is that God is going to judge and especially during this tribulation period for all who take the mark of the beast. Questions? So the big question someone will ask is, does that mean that all believers that are alive at this time, all of the Jews that have been saved, will avoid the boils? I believe yes. I believe when it says it is for those that have taken the mark of the beast, that's exactly what it means. And so 
that is kind of sometimes difficult, though, because the Bible says, what, it rains on the just and the... Yes, but in this time period, I believe that God is dealing specifically with showing the world that he is going to protect his people. He is going to protect the nation of Israel. He is doing miraculous things. If you think about the two witnesses who were killed but then brought back to life, if you think about the 144,000 evangelists who cannot be stopped, cannot be harmed, cannot be killed, you are going to see in that time period the protection and provision of God in such a way that the world is without excuse. They can see that there is something different about those who belong to the one true God and those who belong to to Satan. And so I think it's a distinct difference that God is putting on display. Yes? Uh, where did you get about the flesh eating the You see it in Luke chapter 16 there on the front. That's the boils. That is in uh, Exodus chapter 9 and then in Zephaniah chapter 14 verse 12. It's the, the verses there on the front page. Okay, there's a whole bunch right over there on that table. Sorry. The second bowl in verse 3. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man. And every living creature in the sea died. And so we have seen this a little bit in two other places. If you remember in Exodus chapter 7, starting in verse 20, and Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sights of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died, the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither was his heart moved by this. So all the Egyptians dug all around the river for water to drink, because they could not drink the water of the river. And seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. So right, the judgment is on one nation at this point, on the nation of Egypt. In Revelation chapter 8, when we see this very same thing, then the second angel sounded and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood and a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. So the same pattern with the first plague, we see it first in the Bible with a single nation. The second time it affects one third of the world. And then in the book of Revelation, when we see the final judgment, it affects the whole globe. It affects everything. And so what we're seeing is God is intensifying his judgment as it gets closer to completion. Questions? Verse 4, the third bowl, the waters turned to blood. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, O Lord, and we'll stop right there. 
right? Because we see this play and we see what is going on here. And if you want to, you can flip down to chapter uh, 7 of Exodus and we see the very same thing in regards to one nation's judgment. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die and the river shall stink and the Egyptians shall loathe to drink the water of the river. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds and over all the pools of water that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. And so when you think about the fresh water that is needed to survive being corrupted, it is a massive judgment. But look what it says in verses 5 through 7. Because when we see all of this, we understand the devastating effects it is going to have on the world. But in verse 5 of Revelation chapter 16, it says, And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord. So he says, Lord, you're perfect. Lord, there is no questioning your decision. This is what is right. The one who is and who was and who is to be. It's referring to the fact that his decisions are righteous because he is God. He's the only one that has always existed, will exist, and exist forevermore. Because you have judged these things. And so God is pouring out his judgment for what has been done. And so what is the judgment that he has judged? Well, here it is. For they have shed the bloods of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. For it is their just due, and I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgment. And so I believe he is talking here about all of the saints who have been murdered, who got saved during the tribulation period. He's talking about the two witnesses that were being killed. He says, because of this wickedness, this is the judgment that is coming. God has judged them. God knows their heart and his judgment is perfect. Now this is seen throughout all of the Bible. We know that at the great white throne judgment, when the Lord judges, that his judgment is going to be right and perfect. We looked in the book of Jeremiah Sunday, who alone knows the heart of man? It's God. And so his judgments are perfect when it comes to sin, when it comes to righteousness. That's why the death of Christ is the central to what we believe. Because, right, there can be no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. There can be no imputed righteousness. That means the righteousness of Christ given to your account to make you righteous in the eyes of God without a sacrifice. And we know from reading the word of God, the Old Testament sacrifices were not good enough. There needed to be a perfect sacrifice. And so Jesus came, right? As John said, the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And so when we look at sin, that is why tonight I want to remind you of this. As a church, 
I know the world wants us to embrace sin. The world wants us to love the sin or hate the sin. But I want you to know something, that what the world wants us to do is compromise what the word of God says is right or wrong. What is godly or ungodly? What is righteous or unrighteous? And so as a church, while we do not have perfect judgment, while we do not have the ability to know the heart like God does, what we do have is the perfect word of God. And we are to apply it to our own lives. It is the standard for everything we do as a church. This church is not built on your creativity. It's not built on my likability. And God's people said, amen. It is built upon the foundation of God's word. And if you ever are in a Sunday school class or you are listening to a sermon and you begin to hear, I feel, I think, I would like, the Bible says, but... Friends, that's a dangerous place because the Spirit of God, the Bible says, uses the Word of God to lead us in all truth. And tonight when we're dealing with a lost world, a broken world, we're dealing with situations that are above our abilities and our wisdom, we've got to be like Solomon. Lord, show me. Show me what you want. Lord, give me a heart that judges with understanding and wisdom. And friends, the heart is not what we trust. It's the word of God. And so no matter who stands behind the pulpit at 10 Mile, no matter who teaches your Sunday school, no matter who leads the children's classes, if the word of God is not believed to be inerrant and infallible, friends, that's a dangerous thing. That's why we don't partner with religious groups that have changed the word of God. We call them cults. Because why? They have taken the foundation of the faith. Right? That's why the Bible says to preach and teach the whole counsel of God. Because it is truth. It is the foundation in a world that has none. And so please tonight, whether it's you being a husband, a father, a mother, a wife... Wherever God has you, if you will build that upon the judgment and righteousness of God's word, it will stand. It will last. It will not return void. And so always remember that. Thoughts? Questions? All right. So the fourth bowl. And if you've seen in your notes there in verses 5 through 7, I put why God is doing this and why he is right. We don't always get that answer. I wish we did. I wish that every time something happened in our life, the angel of the Lord would show up and say, this is why God's doing it. And this is why he's right. But he doesn't. And so, but we do trust who he is. In verses 8 and 9, we looked here at the fourth bowl. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and power was given him to scorch men with fire. And so something is going to happen with the sun or something supernatural like a comet, something that is going to affect the heat and light of this earth and it is going to burn up. We're going to see a worldwide death and vegetation just like this. But look what it says in verse 9. And men were scorched with great heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues. That's a very important statement 
Because when we look here in verse 9, they are blaspheming the name of God, but God does not try to hide behind the fact that he's not the one in charge. Right? It literally says who has the power or the authority over these plagues. God is the one that is sending it. God is the one that is doing it. God has a purpose behind it. And what is that purpose? Well, I believe it's told to us in the very next few words. And they did not repent and give him glory. They are on record for what's in their heart, the rebellion and hatred for God. And so tonight, I encourage you as God works in your life, whether it's through blessings or hardships, whether it's through good times or difficult times, whether it's through the mountaintops or the valleys, are you and I people who will repent and give God the glory? Or are we people who harden our hearts and blaspheme God? So that's the fourth one there. And we see this in the Old Testament talked about. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, starting in verse 22, for a fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest hell. It shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the mountain foundations of the mountains. In Malachi chapter 4, it again says these words about the future. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. Now, if it just stopped there, that would be very applicable, right? We, we see that that's what God is doing here. But look what it goes on and says in that wonderful little book about the future. That will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the sole of your feet. And on this, on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts, and so when you think about the nation of Israel, if this promise was given to her in the Old Testament, has there ever been a time when the nation of Israel has seen the Son of Righteousness rise, a time of great healing, a time where they have grown in prosperity and provision under the blessing of God, and Israel has trampled her enemies? No. You can look at the Jewish history from the book of Malachi forward. It has been a nation that has been persecuted. It has been a people who have been hunted and murdered and almost driven to the point of extinction if it was not for the Lord. But what happens after these plagues that we talked about earlier if you believe in the timeline that we believe that it teaches? In chapter 19, who is coming? the son of righteousness, to destroy his enemies, to set up the millennial kingdom, and his people will prosper during that time. And so we see Malachi talking about a day when the wicked are scorched, Jesus arises, and his people are blessed. And so in chapter 16, we see that men are scorched, 
And then if we jump to chapter 19, which is uh, after verses chapter 17 and 18, verse 11, and I'm going to reference this a lot tonight. Then, then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all, well, that's verse 17, excuse me. My eyesight is not, never mind. My eye doctor's here. Don't say that. <laughs> Chapter 19, verse 11. So, the letters are too small. <laughs> now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. Jesus rising to come to defeat his enemies, to heal and prosper his people. And so we see this unfolding as... It lays itself out. Questions? Is there going to be like a second garden of Eden? Well, I think the Bible... protected while all these things are happening with his people? No, I think that what you are going to see is during these things are going to see... The world is going to be completely transformed by the natural disasters. Uh, even when we looked at Jerusalem being split by a earthquake in the last chapter and it talks about the uh, I can't think of it seven or ten thousand my brain is not working at the moment were killed who followed the antichrist uh, many bible commentators believe that God was establishing Jerusalem with his people with that earthquake as a thing of protection for when the world does come against them at the battle of Armageddon that they are set aside and so, but no, I believe that God is going to supernaturally provide for his people uh, during this period, just like that they're not the ones that are going to get the uh, boils. But I believe that these seven judgments happen immediately. They're just happening one after another. And so you're just seeing a rapid fire of the end of that seven-year period. So look at verse 9, though, because we want to see again, as God is at work, and men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. That statement is going to be repeated as we talked about throughout this chapter. The fifth bowl in verse 10. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. Now, some people believe this judgment is going to be poured right at wherever the Antichrist set up his place of worship, uh, whether he set up his, his pagan church. We don't know for sure. It's best just to know that God is pouring out his judgment and the world is going to know who it is pointed at. And his kingdom became full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. If you notice, it's tying it back to the things that they have been going through. So this is a rapid fire event of things, right? They've got sores. They're not able to find food. They're not able to drink fresh water. And now all of these other pains are being added to them, right? It's an accumulation of judgment. And I think this is very important because once again, the Old Testament talks about these events someday happening. In Joel chapter 2, verse 2, if you read in verse 4, 
or on, on the next page, excuse me. A day of darkness and gloominess. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like the morning clouds spread over the people. A people come great and strong. The like of whom has never been. Nor will there ever be any such after them. Even for many successful generations. And so people say, well, what about the generations? How does that fit into Joel chapter 2? Well, it matters but what you believe about the millennial kingdom. Because if you believe in the millennial kingdom, like I do, that there are going to somehow be people who do not die at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, who were not in heaven, all right? And so they are believers on the earth who enter the millennial kingdom with us, all right, on earth. So the Bible then talks about at the end of that 1,000 years that there is another rebellion, right? Satan is released from his chains and leads the armies against the Lord one more time. Where do these people come from? Because, right, if you're like me and you've been in heaven, you've been a child of God, you come back with him to rule and reign, you cannot lose what God has given you. And so the question is, is those people who go into the millennial kingdom as believers but have not received their glorified bodies, do they procreate? And is it their generations of offspring who rebel against God? That's a lot bigger than my pay grade, all right? But that's the only thing that seems to work. The question is, though, is that what it's talking about for successful generations? Is it really the focus of the people who are in focus here? Because if it's the people in focus, it could absolutely be talking about this great group of people who are going to rebel against God, not in the positive sense, but great in number, right? A worldwide army. Or is it talking specifically more about the darkness and gloominess? And so really, though, um, we don't know. It's a very difficult verse, but yet when we see Revelation played out, it really shines light back onto that because also in Mark chapter 13, if you look in verse 24, it says, but in those days after that tribulation or can be at the end of that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And so when you look at all of these verses together, you're able to begin able to piece together most of the details, but yet there are still some things we just don't know. And so as I told you throughout the book of Revelation, if you find someone that claims to have all the answers about the book of Revelation, they are a liar, all right? So we're doing the best that we can. But look at verse 11, because look at the response once again in chapter 16, verse 11. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. Now, if you look in verse 9, it says repent and give him glory, right? That almost gives us the impression of the heart. There is no change of the heart. But in verse 11, it says they did not repent of their deeds. And so now they're not repenting because of their actions. And really that follows suit, right? Because the, as you, if you were here on Sunday morning, out of the heart comes 
actions, right? An evil heart produces evil actions. And it gave us that list of those actions. And so I think what you're doing is you're seeing an unfolding of the judgment of God, but you're also seeing an unfolding of what it looks like to reject the Lord, right? It is a heart issue that rejects God. And then out of a heart issue is the overflow of that wickedness. So questions, thoughts? Well, these two are extremely big and I don't know if we'll get to them tonight because we're out of time, but I would be more than happy to just blow through them real quick and we can jump back in two weeks to look at them. But in verse 12, we see the sixth bowl being poured out. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings... Now stop there, all right? These two things are cause and effect, all right? This is what happened. This is why. And so technically it would be the opposite of cause and effect, but it would be the, the what and the why, all right? That's a better explanation. There was a specific reason the water of the Euphrates is dried up, and it is to specifically make way for these kings to come. And uh, something I find extremely amusing, we'll look at here in just a second. From the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs. These are not frogs. These are demons that have possessed these individuals, okay? Coming out of the mouth of the dragon, of the mouth of the beast, and of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons. You say, well, how did you know the frogs weren't really frogs? It tells you. I was just seeming smart. Performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. So what we see are earthly leaders being influenced by demonic forces. All right, We see them being influenced to do the things that Satan wants them to do. But look at verse 15. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. So he starts saying all of this is coming to completion, but yet if you're alive during this time, you're reading this during that time, then you need to remember to stay focused on the Lord, right? To finish to the end, right? Those who persevere to the end shall be saved. The reason I like this so much is you see the same correlation to the story of the Exodus, right? We know that the Euphrates River is given as a border for the land that God gave the nation of Israel. And so when it says the Euphrates dries up, what it is saying is that border that is God established, God determined, he is making it open for the enemies to come across, for them to come and gather where he wants. In Genesis 15, it says this, On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, something I do want to call to your attention is with all of the earthquakes and all of the the, the stuff that the earth has experienced, we don't know exactly how wide the Euphrates will be. We don't know how deep it will be. We don't know if it will have the same pattern. I believe it will because it is a border that God has established. But when you think of the Egyptians pursuing 
the children of Israel when they have fled the wilderness. Right? We know the story. If you've, if you've never read the book, you've seen the movie, right? Uh, Charles Heston, right? Uh, the waters part. The children of Israel go across. And let's read the best version right here, right? Starting in verse 23. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them in the midst of the sea. All of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. And he took off their chariot wheels, so they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians on their chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Why I love this so much is the Egyptians thought that because God made a path through the water that they would be able to hunt down the children of Israel and destroy them. And when God dries up the Euphrates, the kings of the east are going to look and say, God has forsaken them. We have a free pass to march right up to their doorstep. But what they do not know is they are marching into the place that God wants them to be so that he can destroy them. And so what they think is a blessing, what they think is the the power and provision of whoever they are worshiping is really God putting his enemies where he wants them. And I, I like that because of this. I believe God still does the same thing. God can move people out of your life that do not need to be there. That's why the Lord says, trust me to fight your battles. That's why the Bible says vengeance is mine. It is the one thing as a pastor I wish I would have listened and learned at the very beginning. Because I am not one to sit and to listen and to wait. I would much rather fight. I would much rather respond. I would much rather correct someone that needs to be corrected. And what God says is just trust me. Just trust me. As a church, it's one of the greatest things we can learn. There are always going to be people who speak unkind about us. There are always going to be people that try to destroy what God is doing here. There is always going to be things that are happening that should not be happening. And we have to let God fight for us. We just have to trust him. God can move. God can work. God can do. And I wish, I wish... I wish I would have learned that sooner. Because why? God can fight my battles better than I can. God can change hearts. I cannot. God cannot reveal things to people. God can reveal things to people that I cannot. All I can do is just muddy the water. All I can do is pour gas on the fire. And so when I read this, I just think of this amazing thing that when the enemies of God think they are winning, they're really not. 
And friends, we're watching that in our nation today with the wickedness and sin and all that is going on. It's easy for us to look and think the enemy is winning. But God is not asleep. God has not become powerless. God is putting his enemies in a place that he wants them to be, even if I don't see why. And I'm going to do this last one, and then I'll stop, and then you can, you, can, you can throw stuff at me. The seventh bowl, all right? Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, it is what? Done. Now, this is important because it started out by saying to complete, right? It is done. This is very important, these words in this chapter. And there were noises and thunderings and lightning, and there was great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Now stop right there. And so when you see how much Babylon represents in the Bible and how many times it's referred to in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the spiritual wickedness and the regular wickedness, it's no accident that in verses in the next two chapters, chapter 17 and 18, God goes from this one sentence about Babylon's destruction to explaining it to us in more detail. All right? Because God is trying to explain to us why he's done what he's done what is going to happen that is going to happen? In verse 20, it says, Then every island fled away. The mountains were not found. A great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blaspheme God because of the plague of hail, since that plague was extremely great. Now, we have seen this, right? We've seen it in Exodus We've seen it in Revelation chapter 11, verse 19. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in the temple and there were lightnings, noises, thunders, an earthquake and great hail. So we've seen the nation judged. We've seen a third of the earth judged and now we've seen the entire earth judged. But don't forget, the Bible talks about this event. God shaking the very foundation of the world. God shaking the very heavens or the atmosphere that exists in verse 20, verses two, verse, chapter two, verse six of Haggai. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while. So he says, there's going to be one more time. I'm going to shake and rattle the earth to its very core, but it's going to be a little while. I will shake heaven and earth, the sea, and dry land. Now, if you just read chapter 20 with me, the islands fled away, the mountains were not found, hail from heaven is falling. That is what? Heaven, earth, sea, and dry land. And so we're seeing the fulfillment of what Haggai told us. And when we read through this, we read all of this judgment and we see that he says it is done. It is completed. The judgment on the earth for this sin is done. And so if you finish chapter 16, I told you at the beginning, chapter 17 and 18 are an explanation of what we've just talked about in Babylon. The next event chronologically 
It's chapter 19, all right? And we're not going to read it all for the sake of time, but chapter 19 talks about the Lord triumphing over Babylon. In verse 11, you say, Jake, you've already read this. I know, but it's so good. (laughs) Now, right? What has happened has passed, and now what comes next, right? The tribulation period has fulfilled itself. The judgment of God has fallen upon the wicked of this world, and they're all gathered in Armageddon, right? They're all prepared to wipe out the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, The kings of the east have all came. Here they are for this great battle, for this outnumbered foe that's on top of a hill who has no way to defeat them militarily, financially, or physically. And in verse 11, Now I saw heaven opened up, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it was called Faithful and True. And in him he judges and makes war. And if you read the rest of that passage of Scripture, you know that he wins. He wins. We know that after that, in verses 11 through 16, we see the outcome of the armies of the beast. We see what happens to these kings. And I'm not going to read it for just the sake of time. And what happens to them, right? They lose. But in 1 Thessalonians, the Bible talks about the coming age, the coming time. 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians are wonderful books as he constantly reminds them that the Lord is coming back. The Lord is coming back. The Lord is coming back. That God is going to take care of his own. Wonderful two books and maybe we'll go through them at some point. I preached through them years ago but you have all forgotten at your ages. So... (laughs) I'm just being serious. But anyway, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now we know that the wrath to come from a salvation standpoint can be the fact that you die apart from Christ and spend an eternity away from Him. But when you look at the overall theme of First and Second Thessalonians, and if you want to, you can flip there. If you don't want to, you don't have to. It talks about the rapture of the church. It talks about perilous times and perilous men. It talks about the rise of the Antichrist. It talks about all of those things in those two books that it very well could be talking about that he is protecting them from the what wrath? The wrath of the tribulation. The very wrath of God on the world. Because it says what? And to wait for his son from heaven. What is going to save us from the wrath to come? The coming of the Lord. And so whether you believe that is at the midpoint of the tribulation and you're going to avoid the last bit of wrath, whether you view the tribulation, uh, the rapture coming at the beginning of the tribulation and you're avoiding all of it, uh, or if you view that the rapture happens at the very end when there is no rapture, it's just all one event. It's kind of hard to avoid the wrath to come, but that's you've got to believe what you believe, I guess. But what it says here is that he is coming back 
And as a believer, that's what we long for. Come, Lord Jesus, quickly. That's the hope of everything. It's not political. It's not financial. It's not government. When Jesus comes back to rule and reign, that's it. Uh, today, I'm going to quote uh, Bill Weber, if that's okay. And if it's not, I'm still going to do it anyway, Bill. But um, we were riding to St. Louis and back today to do a hospital, a hospital visit today. And we was talking about uh, the government and just different ways to fix it, term limits, things like that. And he said, you know, the best form of government is a monarchy. And I went, in my mind, I'm thinking, what are you, British? Right? <laughs> he says, the problem is we've never had the perfect monarch. But he says that day is coming. And I thought, that'll preach. That will flat work. And he's right. The only perfect form is a monarchy with Jesus as the perfect monarch. He knows what I need, when I need it, and he knows how to provide it. And so friends, it's not a president, it's not a congress, it is the perfect king who reigns and rules forever. And as Christians, that's what we're looking forward to when Jesus comes again. Questions, thoughts? So I hope that was all right to use, Bill. I didn't ask your permission. So, but it was really good. Yes? I, uh, you know, we think we have bad weather sometimes. We have about the hailstones. In my yeah. Bible, they say they were about 100 pounds each. Yeah. Yeah. It was actually funny because today we were driving back and a big piece of ice off the top of a semi blew off and hit the cab of my van right above where Bill was sitting. And uh, it didn't scare him, but I almost had to change my shorts. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and so just the thought of that, just that big piece of ice that fell off, I can't imagine. And uh, that's a true story. He was there. He, he, you know, so. When it talks about Revelation, is it, or Babylon and Revelation, is it talking more of a place or a people? Well, it can be many things. It can be the place. It can be the religious system. It can be the earthly government. And that's why I think when you see the book of Revelations, it takes two whole chapters to talk about it. Because when you read through the book of Revelation, you ask, what, how does this happen? How does this evil spread? How does this worldwide power happen? Now, then we'll get into the debates of do we think the world religion will be Islam or Catholicism. I personally think it's going to be Islam. Um, but uh, and then that's where we'll be able to talk about the details of that. Because we just get one verse in chapter 16 of, oh, and Babylon was remembered by God and he judged it. And it's like, well, that doesn't say much. And so then chapter 17 and 18, God kind of stops, explains to us what has happened and why. And so that'll be a lot to take in over the next couple weeks. So the bowl judgments are pretty easier compared to the stuff that we're getting ready to wade into. So. What was it? My translation says vials instead of bowls. So no, what it, it, I don't know what the word for vial means there, but what it would have been is it would have been a large saucer, um, and you see that in the other places, even back into the Old Testament. So wouldn't have been like a cut bowl. It would have been something that would have been wide, very shallow, with a tendency to overflow, to be poured out. So. 
but I don't I can't I don't know what that word revile means in the Greek at the moment, so I you know I can't I can't clarify that with you. 